Good morning. Wasn't that great? We have two scripture passages this morning. Each of them is about the faith of Abraham. But I warn you, they're a little bit long passages. So I have taken the liberty of abridging a few. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but fear not. If you want to see what's in what I'm leaving out, it is written in your bulletin. But let us start with Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you All the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went. I'm going to skip now down to the Hebrews passage. And for those of you who are online, this will give them a moment to advance the slides so that they know to get to the Hebrews passage. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land that he had promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So he looked forward to the city that had its foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received the power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven, and as the innumerable grains of sand by the sea, by faith. For we walk by faith, not by sight. This is the word of the Lord. I'm tired, and so are you. You know what I mean? These last 18 months, when the pan- with the pandemic and all, has left us all tired. And it's not the usual kind of attired. You know, the usual kind of attired, we can get a good night's sleep, maybe get away for a couple of days, something like that, and that we are refreshed enough to go on. We are all exhausted. And there's really, well, let's stop for a second. I bet, I'm t- I, I bet you're tired for the same reason I am. It's not just the pandemic. I have a friend who has talked about how over the last 18 months, we've not faced one crisis. We've faced four crises. And I would argue there's probably a fifth. But what are the four crises we faced? Obviously, there's the medical crisis with the pandemic. Nobody needs me to explain this to you. You're all wearing masks. We all know what that's about. There's an economic crisis. 
Lots and lots of people have had either their jobs where they've lost their jobs, their jobs have been curtailed, their jobs have been changed. Uh, we were just talking last night about how hard it is for so many companies, to, um, restaurants and the places to find even workers. There's an economic crisis. There's a political crisis. Now, wherever you stand on whichever side of the aisle, I don't need to convince you that we have a political crisis going on right now. And there have been for the last, especially 18 months, we've been experiencing a racial crisis. Over and over again, we have had issues come up that have required us to face things that as a country we would rather ignore. I would add a fifth crisis. For anyone with school-aged children, we have an educational crisis. Um, everybody that I know that's either got school-aged children or teaching in the schools talks about how the pandemic has just created such a difficult time for our kids. We've got five different crises. And if there was any one of them, we might be able to get our hands around them. But to be able to deal with them all just feels exhausting. The way I think about it is that uh, if you've ever been to the sea, if you've ever been out in the ocean, when waves come, if they come in sets, what you can do is you can, you know, okay, I'm going to go up a little bit, I'm in the water, and now I'm going to have a little break. And then I'm going to go up, and then I'm going to have a little break. But the crises have come to us much more like white water in a rapids, in a river where the waves are coming from all sorts of different directions, and we can't get our hands around it. We can't know what to expect. It's so unpredictable, and it's going to smack us in the head, and we don't even know what it's going to be. We live in a time of permanent white water. No wonder we're exhausted. And so today, I want to ask, what does it mean to have faith in such a turbulent world? We talked in the passage we just read, it talked about by faith Abraham, and then it described him. And then it said by faith Abraham, by faith. What does it mean to say by faith San Marino Community Church did what? What does it mean to say by faith each of you did what during the pandemic? What does it look what does it look like to be faithful in the midst of all of this turbulent change? How do you get your head around that? Well, I want to suggest to you that what we need to do is return to the Christian practices that we have for generations, hundreds of years practiced as Christians, and we're going to have to find ways to reinvent them for the moment. Scholars often call these constitutive practices. They are the practices that constitute the faith. That if you do these things, you are by definition being Christian. And there's not been a time or a place where Christians existed that didn't do these kinds of things. But they look different in every time and place. And I want to point to three today. I want to talk about prayer. I want to talk about lament. And I want to talk about Sabbath. And what my goal today is to give you something to grab onto. Oftentimes when we're in this white water, it feels like we can't get our feet under us. We can't get something to grab onto. And I want to give you something that you can hold onto. So I'm going to talk about these three practices, prayer, lament, and Sabbath. Let's start by prayer. Now, every one of us 
knows how to pray. This is not like going to be one of those moments where I'm going to tell you, let me introduce you to prayer because you've never seen it before. But I want to suggest to you that for a lot of you, it may look different to pray right now, especially to pray when we feel like we don't have control. Let me give you an example. I had to learn to pray differently when my wife was diagnosed with very serious cancer. It was touch and go there for a while. She's okay now. But I had to learn to pray differently. You see, I didn't want to say, thy will be done. I wanted what I wanted. I wanted her to be okay. I had to say to God, God, if I had a choice, if I could hold on to this, I would. This is just too important to me. But I had no control. And so I had to hand over my control to God. And so this is what I did. At the time, I had a commute. And so every morning when I got in my car, before I got to turn on the radio or listen to NPR or do whatever it is I would do while sitting on the freeway, I would pray out loud and I would say to God, I hand Jeannie over to you. And sometimes, if I was safe, I would literally use this kind of a gesture as I was driving, sitting on the 210. I would say, God, I hand her over to you. I hand her over with fear and trembling. Because if I could, I would not hand her over to you. If I could keep her and guarantee that, I, that she would be well, I would do so. I choose to trust you because I have no choice. God, I trust you, but I'm terribly afraid. And it changed the way that I pray. So nowadays when I pray, I don't just simply say, God, please do such and such. What I say is, God, I hand these people, I hand this person, God, I hand them over to you because you love them more than I do, and I do it with an enormous amount of fear and trembling. It is a statement of faith and not fatalism. But it comes with an awful lot of fear. So the first thing, I want to suggest to you is that you might try praying differently. Just simply pick something that is bothering you and hand it over to God. The second thing I want to talk about is lament. Now, most of you have heard this term lament. Um, there are psalms of lament. About 40% of the psalms are psalms of lament. You know how, which, how you can tell which 40% they are? They're the ones we don't read in church. You know, we pick the Psalms that talk about praise and how wonderful God is, but we don't talk about the Psalms where, well, the message of the Psalms of Lament is this. The message of the Psalms of Lament is that God can handle your honesty, even and especially if you are angry at God. We think we're not allowed to be angry at God. I mean, we think God is like every other human we have encountered before, only better. And we have learned that humans with power, you don't mess with them. You don't make them angry. You don't show them your anger because they could crush you. 
But God invites us to be honest, even and especially if we are angry at God. Let me point to you one of the Psalms. My favorite Psalm of Lament is my favorite Psalm. I, it was my favorite Psalm long before I knew it was a Psalm of Lament. It's Psalm 139. Many of you know Psalm 139. It talks about how wonderful and fearfully and wonderfully made we are. God knows everything about us. So I flee from, uh, from God to the wings of the dawn. There you are with me. We talk about over and over again. It's, it's 18 verses of how wonderful God it is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And then there's two verses we skip. And then at the end it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I would like to suggest to you that the two verses we skip are the point of the psalm. What do the verses say? They say, oh, that you would slay the wicked, and I have names for you. The whole message of the psalm is, God, I want you to kill people for me. Now, that's not one we normally say in church. But here is the structure of the psalm. 18 verses where it says, God, you know me better than I know myself. I might as well be honest with you. I want you to kill people for me. And then the last part says, if that's not right, fix me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. I love that structure as a prayer. God, you know me better than I know myself. I might as well just be honest with you. Here's what I really think. If that ain't right, fix me. That's a prayer I can pray every day. That's the message of the Psalms of Lament. The message of the Psalms of Lament is that God can handle your honesty, even and especially if you are angry at God. At one point, I was working with a, um, through the Fuller Youth Institute, we were working with a, a number of congregations that were reaching out to young people. And one of the churches had an uh, outreach to a number of middle schoolers. And if you have, how many of you have ever been a middle schooler? You, you remember what that's like. You know, middle school is like Barstow. It is something you pass through on the way to something better, but nobody should live there. Now, I said that one time, and a guy came up to me and says, I teach middle school in Barstow. But my point here is that they were reaching out to these middle schoolers. And so they said, let's teach them to lament. Let's teach them to talk honestly to God. Now, what they did is they used something called a Mad Lib structure. Now, many of you would remember when in elementary school they had these things called Mad Libs, where you would fill in the blanks. Well, the kids were used to that. And so they gave them, well, give me, let me give you two, um, one, let me give you just one of the fill in the blanks they said. God I will, I will trust you despite the fact that, and then they could write whatever they wanted. God, I will trust you despite the fact that, and then they could write whatever they wanted. I dare you to pray that prayer this week. God, I will trust you despite the fact that, and then say what you're really thinking. Another church that we worked with through the same group um, said, oh, this lament, that could work for, for young people. And they went home, and they built a wailing wall. They took styrofoam blocks, and they set it up in a youth room, and they painted them brown, 
and they gave little, and they give the, the kids um, uh, little strips of paper and little golf pencils. And they said, you could write whatever you want, and you'll roll them up, and you'll put them into the wall, and only two things will happen. One is the only people that will read it will be the youth leaders. And number two is the only thing they will do in response is they will pray for you. And the first couple of weeks the kids did this, it was, you know, very innocuous stuff. But then nobody freaked out, and so they started getting more and more honest. And it changed the way that they talked to God. Well, eventually, the adults in the church heard about this and said, we want a piece. And so they took, and they took that same wailing wall, and they moved it into their contemporary service. And they had a, ser- a contemporary service where they did just the same thing. Imagine what worship would be like if you could tell God exactly what you were thinking. That's what lament says. God, I will trust you no matter what. I will trust you despite the fact that whatever. God, you know me better than I know myself. I might as well be honest with you. Here it is. And if that ain't right, fix me. So we've got prayer. We've got lament. But I want to give you one other uh, Christian practice that you might think about right now, and that's Sabbath. Now, most of us are used to knowing that Sabbath means a day of rest, or Sabbath means blue laws, where you, the stores aren't open on Sundays, or something like that. I want to suggest to you a different definition of Sabbath. Sabbath is a healthy rhythm of labor and rest. Now, when they gave the Ten Commandments to the Hebrew people that had just spent generations in slavery, where they were working all day, every day, they did not need to learn to labor well. They needed to learn to rest well. I would like to suggest in our society that there are some who need to learn to labor well and some that need to learn to rest well. And if most of us are honest, we need to learn both. And I want to offer you an analogy of what I mean. Every one of you knows what junk food is, right? It's food. It will give you calories, but it's not that good for you. I want to suggest to you that I often struggle with what I would call junk food labor and junk food rest. It's where I give the appearance of labor or I give the appearance of rest. It is labor that is not productive and fulfilling. Now, I don't want to say that every job that you do has to do with always being delightful, because in order to do things that are important to me, I often have to do very tedious things. But I see them as contributing to a larger whole. What I'm talking about is, well, you all know what it's like to have Well, we're pretending that we're working. Or we are doing productive, or well, let's put it this way, we're doing procrastinating work, where it looks like we're working, but we're really not. I think in this day and age, that's not as much of a problem as what I would call junk food rest. For me, junk food rest looks like this. I'm flipping channels on the TV, kind of just zoning out. That's the equivalent of junk food in my life. What I want to say, the opposite of junk food rest is what I would call restorative rest. What really restores you? And it could be something that is not what anyone imagines. 
So for me, one of the things that I've learned is that watching basketball on television is restorative to me. Because in another life, I would have been a basketball coach. I love all the intricacies of the game. And so when I watch the game, my whole brain is involved. I'm looking at the players, what they should be doing, what, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it engages my whole self, but it's a different version, a different part of my brain than when I am laboring in my job. And I come away from that restored. Now, I would bet that for many of you, that's probably not what restorative rest looks like. For my wife, it's often about doing crafts, knitting, quilting, that kind of stuff. That to me just sounds like labor. For some of you, it's gardening. That sounds like yard work to me. So every one of you has to find whatever it is to be restorative. But as you go through the week, think about the difference between junk food labor, junk food rest, and what God is calling you to in the Sabbath of a healthy rhythm of labor and rest. So let's go all the way back to those crises that come crashing in on us like waves from, the, from a river, the permanent white water that we are experiencing. How do you get a handle? How do you get a footing? How do you find a way to get solid? I would suggest that maybe you turn to some of the Christian practices that we have engaged in for generations. Pray differently. Find a different way to express lament. Find a way to express Sabbath. In any one of those, if you try them, you will discover that you will see God in a new way, and you will feel different about these four crises. When we start for, well, let's put it this way. Many of you feel stuck. You feel like, I'm being battered and I don't know what to do next. I can't promise you that these three practices will solve your problems. But now you have options. Now you have something to try. I invite you to try it this week. To God be the glory. Amen.